Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. Now, March is Women's History Month, so this week we thought we'd revisit this episode from July of 2014 called Three Women. Now, there are some content warnings and other commentary about the stories within the episode, and in the nine years since it was released, we're still so moved by the emotional intelligence and the bold honesty of these storytellers. So, without further ado, here's the episode we call Three Women. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is suhav and mill behind me now we're calling today's episode three women because that's what it consists of three extraordinary women each of whom has been an inspiration to me so it's an honor to have them sharing their experiences today I'm just excited about how powerfully all three of them express themselves and how differently as well. And I thought that for today's episode, I should probably mention this issue that's been coming up a lot with us lately. There is a popular term that you might have run into around the interwebs recently. The term is trigger warning. The whole idea that sometimes content that you might be about to sit down and take in might be a little traumatic for you in case you've had similar experiences. And so you should be warned that it might trigger post-traumatic sorts of reactions. I have mixed feelings about that idea myself. You know, we've been called out a lot by people on Facebook and Twitter especially to say uh, you should have more of these things. I'm sympathetic about it, but at the same time, risk is designed to be kind of like life in that, you know, life is unexpectedly very funny, unexpectedly horrific, unexpectedly euphoric. And so we like to let the show kind of go wherever it has to go without positioning the audience so much beforehand. Anyway, that said, there is some rough stuff that's coming on this particular episode. And if you're especially worried about needing trigger warnings, it may be that you should consider the entire series of risk to have one of those. All righty then, that's been said. And so let's start with a friend of mine and just such a charming, such a super talented and such a rising star. Here she is at the L.A. Risk Show at the Nerd Melt Theater. This is Cameron Esposito with a story we call The Girl with the Light Brown Side Mullet.
obviously I am a lesbian. <laughs> I have a side mullet. Of course I am. I didn't realize until I was 20 because I grew up in the suburb of Chicago. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago like in an area where there was nobody that was different. Like there was one black dude in my entire town and his name was Mr. White. <laughs> and he taught gym. Like that's what I was up against. I didn't know gays, I didn't know gay was a thing you could be. That's why I didn't know I was gay. I should have known, really, <laughs> looking back on it. <laughs> I mean, is it? It is unusual to whittle your own bows and arrows and carry them to school in a quiver on your back, am I right? <laughs> this is a pre-Hunger Games world I'm talking about. I didn't know and I was also raised in a very Catholic family, like very Catholic. My sisters and I would play mass, so just so you know, the best substitute for a Eucharist, I would use a better cheddar, if you got that around, uh, or a thinly sliced banana. But you're gonna wanna use that right away, because <laughs> you don't want like a brown rotting Jesus body. <laughs> we would walk to school, and then when there was snow between the driveways, we would wait until the snow had melted a little bit and then refrozen, so it gets like a little ice crust on top. We would walk between the driveways and if we could make it without falling through the ice crust, we would play this game and that would be called Jesus. <laughs> and if you fell through the ice crust, you were Moses. <laughs> Which is biblically inaccurate. He didn't even try to walk on water. Should have like shoveled it off to the sides or something. And I dated men because that's what I thought people did. Like in high school, I dated the captain of my football team, which is amazing if you have the information that I was the mascot of that football team. <laughs> Just put that in your minds. He had 4% body fat, so I've tried your fucking best. I'm not interested. He was beautiful. He would score a touchdown. He was a star. I would flap my little bird arms because I was a giant red bird. I would flap my little bird arms the appropriate number of points. He'd kiss me on my little plastic cheek and our high school class voted us a couple most likely to live happily ever after. <laughs> Which is what happens when you go to a Catholic school. People are like, no, I'm pretty sure that football player and that bird are gonna make it. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's gonna make it. Sidebar, I was an outspoken advocate of abstinence. <laughs> like, I wasn't judgmental about it. I was just like, you guys should do whatever you want, but we're waiting. <laughs> Which is amazing looking back on it, because I could have waited forever. <laughs> I just genuinely didn't know that was difficult. I was like, I don't understand why you guys are giving in to the pressure. Stop touching me. Um, <laughs> Like, one of our favorite things to do was to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, only the Willow parts. <laughs> so when I got to college, I went to a Catholic college, and I went to Boston College. I went to a university where social justice is a really big thing. It's such a big thing there that, like, doing social justice work, there was even a term for it. It was, like, social justice -y. And if you were social justice you were actually cool. I can't explain how that's true. It must be a Jesuit school. I can't explain how it, like, the coolest people were the people that had the most safety pins holding together their Jansport backpacks that were from sixth grade. Like, oh, you bought a new backpack? Well, I didn't. Because kids made this. 
kids made this and I bought it when I was a kid when I didn't know. I don't know if you've ever seen a person whose entire outfit is made out of different whales of corduroy, but I have. So many whales. So that's what the environment was in the school that I was in. I broke up with that high school boyfriend and I started dating these two guys, but casually. Neither of them thought I was dating them exclusively, but they didn't know I was dating anybody else and they didn't know who it was. So I was dating these two guys. Now the one of them, he had the same first and last name. Now I'm not gonna tell you what it is because it's a weird one also. It's unusual and it would be highly Googleable. But just for example, it would be like as if his name was Carl Carl. And here's what's great about this. He was third in a family of five, which I love because that means his parents were like, nope, uh-uh, nope, that's the one. That's the one we're gonna fuck forever. <laughs> so I was dating that guy and he was very tall, 6'5", real thin, just real thin and little muscle. And he, he was, I don't know if you've ever met anybody who just seems like life is their kickstand and nobody has to hold their feet. Do you know that person? Where it's just like their body seems to be their own personal cocaine factory. Do you know that? He's just up all the time and he would throw me on, my sho- on his shoulders and we would run through campus and sometimes we would fall. But it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. He was the life of the party. So I was dating Carl Carl when I met Kyle. Now Kyle, he was super chill. Like he had the biggest hookah on campus. (laughs) Many hoses, a lot. He had long hair and a beard and he would wear a robe and a rope belt to parties. He also facially looked like Elvis. So he looked like Jesus slash Elvis, the king of kings. (laughs) And he was a very relaxing person to spend time around. So I enjoyed dating both of them because it was like, neither of them was anything like the other. And by dating, I do mean running away (laughs) a lot at the end of the night. Like we would play drinking games and I would get very drunk and then I would Irish exit. Which is tough, because I'm Italian. And I was taught against that. But that's when you just ghost. That's when you're just out of there. And I did it all the time. And they were like, it's pretty wild that you are dating us, but you don't want to do anything with us. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I drank a lot. So that's one way you can get out of that. (laughs) And then I went on this trip to Kingston, Jamaica. So because of that social justice thing, something that people would do was that they would go and spend spring break in like a third world country. Not because we had like skills or anything to offer the people that were there. We would just go to like the most impoverished areas and then just kind of stand there and be with them. It was nice of us. Because we could have done anything. You know what I mean? Like wasn't that sweet of us? Just to go down and just like, oh, look in their eyes and then go back to the university our parents were paying for. That was nice of us. How sweet. How sweet of us. We just passed out shot necklaces. How nice. I feel like we did a lot. I went to inner city Kingston, Jamaica. And while I was there, I met a woman who was at my university. I just didn't know her. We'd never met. And I liked her immediately. I mean, I liked her and we hit it off so much that people would ask us if we were sisters, which is especially excellent because she is Korean. (laughs) 
But it's just like if you go to a Catholic school, people can't necessarily figure out, like, what's going on here? These two ladies in Umbros seem the same. But I don't know what it is. They must be siblings. Like, I'm not saying adoption doesn't exist. I'm just saying there's another more likely answer for why two women are spending a lot of time together. Best friends, right. Best friends, a lot of gazing. A lot of gazing, a lot of sitting real close on a couch. But I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea what was going on. And we went to this part of Jamaica where there's a, a shanty town that's built on a trash dump, which is pretty sad. It's like people fishing in rivers of Mountain Dew and then there's like a goat standing next to a corrugated tin roof restaurant with a sign that just says like, goat is the special today. And then the goat is like, God damn it. And it's <laughs> legit. And that was the last place that we went, and then we came back to school. Now, when we got back to school, this girl and I, we had this first night back on campus. And we just had this new friendship, but I was dating these guys, and I was like, hey, here's what we should do. Let's get a bottle of yellowtail wine. You know the big kind? You guys know what I'm talking about? The big <laughs> bottle of yellowtail? It is it, three to four bottles of wine. <laughs> we got a bottle of yellowtail wine, and we split it. And then we went to these two parties that the two guys that I was dating were throwing. We went to Carl Carl's place and they were like shoveling jello shots into each other's mouths. We hung out there and at the end of the night I gave him a goodbye kiss. And then we went to Kyle's place and they were like watching the Matrix backwards or whatever they were doing. <laughs> and, we <laughs> and we hung out and at the end of the night I gave him a goodbye kiss. And then we got back to my dorm room, and this woman, I don't remember what she said, something probably about like poverty or whatever. <laughs> but it really worked for me in that moment. And it was the first time that I ever thought maybe I should kiss someone. And I kissed her. And in that moment, I can't explain to you how it felt. Really, I can't to just not have any idea and then something fits so perfectly. It was like a one move solve to like my little gay Rubik's Cube body. Where I was just like, oh! It was like a director's commentary where I just watched the entirety of my life back. Just like, oh my God, bows and arrows! Got it! It was like the guy in Memento suddenly figuring out what his tattoos mean and Joaquin Phoenix swinging away at the same time. <laughs> It was powerful and it was immediate and I felt changed. I felt like I loved her right then. And then I walked her home and I went to bed that night. And I woke up in the morning and I just remember feeling like, I figured it out, you know? I am gonna be with this woman for the rest of my life and I am in love. I have to call her. And also, I remember feeling itchy on my face. What I didn't know was that while I was in that shantytown in Kingston, I had contracted facial ringworm. <laughs> it is a fungus, and it grows in a perfect circle on whatever body part it's growing on. Now, I had it on my cheek, and it is raised bumps, a perfect circle of raised bumps 
red bumps. Let's say you want to really fuck with a very Catholic kid. (laughs) Make sure she's seen the movie The Exorcist. And that she totally understands that the devil will probably try to get out of you through spelling. Then have her kiss a woman for the first time. And have her feel like that might be her identity. And then have her wake up the next morning to just a giant scarlet O. Probably for ovaries, I don't know. Her own skin rejecting itself with shame. It was terrible. I was genuinely concerned until I flew home to spend Easter with my parents. And when I got off the plane, my mom was like, oh, you have something on your face. And I was like, it's gayness. I have gayness on my face. But she took me to the doctor and it was just a fungus. Um, Here's what's the best part of this story. Ringworm is very contagious by touching. Now, none of those people knew that I was dating any of them, nor did they know that I had kissed all three of them on the same night, the night where I already had a fungus on my face, which would be very close to where they were putting their face. I had to make three separate phone calls (laughs) where I was like, hey, how itchy would you say your face was? (laughs) Nobody ended up getting it, Which was great for a lot of reasons. I wasn't really ready to come out yet. And also it would have been strange if they were all at the dining hall and they were like, hey, where'd you get that, uh... Where'd you get that thing? And that woman, my first kiss, she ended up being my first girlfriend. I dated her for like the next three and a half years. You know, and those guys, I only dated them for like another year and a half. (laughs) So I figured it right out. You guys, thank you so much. I'm Cameron Esposito. What, what's this stuff on your face here, man? The mark of shame. Gay! Gay! It was a gay affair. One never knows when the homosexual is about. He may appear normal, and it may be too late when you discover he is mentally ill. Gay! The mark of shame. Gay! What's wrong with her? She's a woman, isn't she? My mother has always been a really tough lady. She met my father in high school. He was a musician, he was in a band, and it was the 70s. He said, why don't you sing in my band? So for the next, you know, six years or so, they were quite a team. She would sing old rock songs like Heart and Led Zeppelin and Kansas. They split because my father couldn't deal with my mother's aggressive personality. My father just wanted to have a nice life, and my mother wanted excitement. So she left my dad and uh, kept going after 
different musicians and guys who just, I guess, had like a darkness about them being in bands and playing in clubs. And I remember seeing her putting on her makeup to go out and she just always looked like a movie star to me. I wanted to be like her. One of the things that I loved about my mother was she always told me that I was beautiful and smart. She made me feel that that was true and that I could be anything I wanted to be. She bought me this little book about friendship and how we were best friends. And that book I treasured forever. I actually still have it. As I got older, she would continue to tell me how beautiful I was and how other people noticed that I was growing into a beautiful woman. I was getting so tall, you know, I was like eight or nine years old and she was like, you're almost as tall as me because she was a small woman. She was like 5'2", very fit. She worked out a lot. She was just this beautiful woman who I wanted to be like and I always wanted her approval. I'm thankful that she always gave me that approval. I never had to seek it out from her. She was very free with that. It was the fall of 1988. I was 10 years old. My mother had moved us to northern Florida to be closer to her father. We ended up living in a very rural town uh, about 20 miles away from where my grandfather lived in a trailer park. We lived with my mom's boyfriend, Jeff. The first time I met Jeff, he took my mom and me to a carnival. When he picked us up, he had a red rose and he played games for me and won me prizes and went on rides with me. And he was definitely a charmer. He wasn't a big guy. He came across sort of gentle, like an artist, a musician, which is what he was. He had piercing blue eyes and a full head of brown hair that was feathered on top and long in the back, sort of like Richard Marks. When my mother told me that we were moving into this trailer, I was so excited because I had my own bathroom. As a 10-year-old, that was really exciting to be able to have my own bathroom and be able to get ready in there and have my own private space. That was the one good thing about living there. Moving in with Jeff, not so much. (laughs) I couldn't really pinpoint what it was that I didn't like about him, but just something deep down inside me knew that he was not who he said he was or pretended to be. In fact, when I went to visit my father that summer, this was actually the first time that I ever told my dad that one of my mom's boyfriends was not great. (laughs) Usually I kept that information to myself because I would rather live with my mother than not live with my mother, I guess, Um, even if it was not a good situation. So I told my dad that I was scared of Jeff. Instead of deciding that I would stay with him in Connecticut or any other number of choices, he decided to call my mother. And then my mother sat me down and said, so your father tells me that you're scared of Jeff. Why is that? I didn't know what to say, so I just said, oh, no, I didn't mean it. So I had never actually seen Jeff do anything to my mother or do anything to anyone else. But I could just tell. 
Also, suspiciously, my mother had two black eyes when I came back from Connecticut. So that was a little bit of a clue that things were not going so well. One night in the middle of the night, I heard some commotion in the living room, which was right outside of my bedroom door. And I didn't know what it was. And I knew that Jeff was not supposed to be there because my mom had kicked him out recently. There was no one in the living room. None of the lights were on in the living room. But the light was on in the hallway that led down past the kitchen toward the other end of the trailer. And that's where my mother's room was. I walked toward the hallway and I see blood smeared all along the wall. Like it looked like someone had taken a paintbrush and just literally painted the wall with blood. The back door of the trailer was just swinging open and smacking against the side of the trailer. I think the blood really set something off inside me. I was very scared. I didn't know what had happened. I'd never seen blood like that before. I did hear some voices outside the trailer, so I figured my mom must be out there. So I stepped down the stairs in my bare feet and padded across the wet grass around the side of the trailer, and I saw in the driveway my mother lying down on her back and Jeff holding her down with his arms. I couldn't just watch my mother be beaten, and I ran over to him in my flimsy cotton nightgown and jumped on his back and started pounding on his back and screaming, get off my mother, get off my mother. It was almost like he didn't even realize I was there. He just kept holding my mother down and murmuring, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I love you so much. You have to listen to me. And my mom was struggling as best she could to get away from him, but her face was completely bloody and swollen. Her eyes were practically swollen shut. I just kept pounding on his back. I wasn't scared that he was going to hurt me. I just wanted him to stop. A light turned on across one of the trailers down the street, and somebody stepped out on their porch. I yelled, and I said, Please help. We need help. That's when Jeff finally realized that he wasn't alone, and he jumped up, throwing me off his back. I landed on the gravel and scraped my hands. Jeff ran to his blue pickup truck and tore off across the lawn and down the street. I felt relieved that he'd left, finally. I was afraid he might come back. He um, wasn't supposed to be there that night. My mom had kicked him out. I knew that he could come back at any time. So I ran into the trailer 
I got some shoes. I got a washcloth and put cold water on it and brought it back out to my mom, who was lying in the driveway, and she pressed it to her face. I could tell she was in a lot of pain. She could barely open her eyes. Her lip was busted open. There was blood around her nose and eyes and on her clothes. And I hoisted her up, put her arm over my shoulder. We stumbled down toward the main road, which was completely dark. There were no street lights in this part of Florida, just completely black just grassland and swamp on either side. It's just like a long two-lane country road. There were no other cars around. We stumbled down the road. I knew there was a gas station about a half mile down the road. So I um, just went there thinking maybe somebody there would be able to help or at least call the police or an ambulance or something. When we finally made it to the convenience store, there were some men there who uh, looked like maybe they were going to go do a construction job or something. They had like a van and they saw my mother and me and they ran over and helped us and lifted my mother into the back of the van. I was like, my mother needs a hospital. They were just like, okay, just don't let her fall asleep. I sat with her in the back of the van and held her hand and, you know, say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just don't fall asleep. We finally got to the hospital. It was about 20, 30 minutes away. And the men just dropped us off at the emergency room and went off to their job or wherever. And it started to get light at this point. You know, it must have been like four or five in the morning. Turned out that she had a broken nose. And this was actually her second broken nose within the last six months. The first had happened over the summer when I was visiting my dad. My mom had said that it was, you know, she just fell and hit her face on the table. But I knew it was Jeff that did it. She had some cracked ribs and she was in shock. So she had to stay in the hospital for a few days. The state did press charges against Jeff but he claimed self-defense. He claimed that a hundred-pound, five-foot-two Filipino woman was attacking him, and he needed to defend himself against her. And uh, this was, you know, in the late '80s, and they didn't take domestic violence that seriously back then, especially in Northern Florida. And then uh, Jeff was a charmer, and he used those same charms on the female public defender he got. She helped him get out of the assault charges. He got out of jail, and he did have a restraining order, but he didn't care (laughs) that he wasn't supposed to come within 50 yards of us, so he kept following my mother all around town or trying to find out where she worked, where she was going, who she was seeing. He uh, showed up at my grandfather's house with a shotgun and threatened to kill my grandfather if he didn't tell him where my mother was. So my mom decided it was probably best for us to move back in with Jeff because then he would 
not try to kill us, I guess. Logic was never a strong suit of my mother's. So we ended up living with Jeff again, and we stayed in hotels and motels and scraped together money. You know, my mother and him would go and try to find work at construction sites or random odd jobs, and I would just stay in a hotel all day long waiting for them. Finally, my mom did enroll me in school, but then two days later, she decided to just send me back to my dad's. So I stayed with my dad for a few weeks, right through Christmas. And then when I came back, my mom had finally told me that she was leaving Jeff and we wouldn't have to ever see him again. And uh, that was actually the best Christmas present I got that year, besides the cherry red electric guitar my dad got me. One day my mom said that she was going to go down to Miami for a little while and tour with this band. She always wanted to be a singer, so this was her chance. And so she took off, and then I didn't see her again for four years. My mother was just too aggressive. She needed a man who was going to control her, but she didn't want to be controlled. It was sort of like a contradictory state that she was constantly getting herself into. Pretty much every single man she's been with has hurt her physically. And I tell her that I'm there for her if she does need some place to go. I will help her as much as I can. After a certain point, there really is only so much you can do. But, you know, that was probably one of the best decisions my mom ever made. <laughs> Letting me go live with my dad and having some stability for the first time in my life. She wanted to get away from Jeff. She knew that if she didn't leave that town, he would just continue to harass her and try to beg her to get back together with him. So she had to get away. I think she also needed me to be in a safe place for a while and be away from her. I knew that she did it because she loved me, and that was the only way that she could keep me safe, was to get away from me. And I'm forever thankful for her doing that. Shoot when you go 
This is Risk. This is Battle Me on the show for the second time. That's all one word. And that was Amber Dre. She was a fan of the show who reached out to us with that story, and I just had to have her on. Amber is a writer, and you can find more of her work at amberdre.com. That's A-M-B-E-R-D-R-E-A.com. Our next storyteller is quite a writer herself. Betty Dodson is the author of the legendary book Sex for One, a book that came out in the uh, 70s. Betty was one of the leading lights in the women's movement of the 70s. She taught many, many, many women how to um, pleasure themselves and what an orgasm really is. Betty and I met just a couple months back, an unforgettable night, a gathering of various kinksters and uh, sex educators, and the minute we met, she started quizzing me on just how filthy I am. (laughs) Betty wanted to know the most perverted things I have done and I passed her test instantly, and we've been very good friends ever since. There's no one quite like her, as you shall soon see. She's 85 years old, and here she is now at the Risk Live show in New York City. This is Betty Dodson with a story we call Hot Lips. I'll hold it. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I always want to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> I masturbate, but I'm not dumb. Okay. I'm not a professional anything other than a professional masturbator. <laughs> I'm actually an educator, and I've been doing it for nearly 50 years. And I've all of a sudden, in the last year, I'm famous. I'm not rich, but I'm famous. So I just want you to know that At 85, I'm an overnight success. And as far as being embarrassed, I mean, the minute I wrote the book and I had to say the name to a cab driver, he said, what's the name of your book? And I said, Liberating Masturbation. He plowed right into the car in front of him. (laughs) Just another day in New York, Betty. But I want to tell you about one of my most humiliating moments that was a mind-blowing opening for me that got me started being a sex educator. I'm 10 years old. I'm out in Wichita where I grew up. And my little girlfriend and I were talking about where babies came from. And her daddy was a doctor, so she knew everything. She had, there's a hole down there between your legs. And I said, there is not. I knew I had a, a poop hole, but she said, no, there's another one where the baby comes out of. So I decided one afternoon, the house was empty. And I got my mother's mirror and I propped it up and the sunlight was coming through the window. And and I get down and I open up, I split my little beaver and oh my God, there were these things hanging down that looked like the things from a chicken. (laughs) 
Well, obviously, I had stretched them from so much childhood masturbation. I mean, I knew that I did it all the time, and I had a mother that was smart enough to not interfere with her kids. So I lived through my adulthood until I'm recently divorced. I'm 35. I'm an accomplished artist. I've had an exhibition, and I'm a good one. I'm not an abstract nutcase. I... I have mastered the classical nude, and I mean good. Put myself through four years of art school on scholarships, married seven years to a premature ejaculator. (laughs) So I could continue my habit, masturbating. And it worked out for me because I spent most of my time in my studio, and besides that, he was making a lot of money. Now, I get divorced because now I think, I want to have partner sex again. And I start dating this guy, and he was a professor at New York University. The man was fucking brilliant. He'd read absolutely every book that was ever written on sex. I mean, if, if we were just to educate ourselves. So we've been dating. We've had sex. Uh, the way I used to have an orgasm was to get on top and manipulate so that I could get my clit into some action. And... <laughs> And I could do it if he could keep an erection for 10, 15 minutes. Now, you go out there and try to find that today, ladies. (laughs) 15 minutes, two minutes, three minutes, boom, over and out. So this one time, we've had marvelous sex. I've had a couple of orgasms. And he said, you know, honey, you have my favorite kind of pussy. I think he said cunt. And I said, oof, I don't like that word. You have my favorite kind of cunt. And I said, what are you talking about? Uh, He said, it's my favorite style. And I went, style? (laughs) Oh, he's sicker than I thought. And so he said, would you mind if I turned on the light? And he reaches over and puts his glasses on it, starts to turn the light on. He said, oh, I said, no, no, no. (laughs) I start crying. I'm so mortified. He'll find out. Now, he's just been down there giving me a blowjob, and I'm, you know, but you're not looking when you're doing that, are you? No. You're licking and sucking and... So he turns on the light, and I'm crying, and he says, Honey, what's the matter? And I said, I'm genitally deformed. He said, What are you talking about? I stretch my inner lips from childhood masturbation. He looked at me like I was a insane and he said what are you talking about well I said those things hanging down I know that's not normal and I stretched them and he said Betty please now mind you I'm 35 I've studied art in Paris I lived in New York City I am a sophisticated woman and I don't know shit about sex I don't know anything about my own sex organ we don't get taught anything in this country if anything they scare you to death So he said, please. He gets up, he goes into the closet. He's recently divorced. He's been sneaking his split beaver magazines and beaten off for the last 10 years. And he (laughs) brings them out and he spreads them on the bed and he says, look, and he starts turning the page. He says, there, she has that. Now in the 60s, this is where it was healthier. All of the images of female genitals, there was a variety. Now we have cookie cutters. Porn has made seem to it that All of the little pussies are like clamshells. There's nothing sticking beyond the outer. That's why all the young girls today are getting vaginal plasty. They go to the doctor and they have their inner lips cut off 
because that's what the porn stars do. And one more step, they have their little assholes bleached and then dyed pink. So, and oh, and boobs, they get the boob job and the blonde, you know, you've seen them. So, <laughs> more than you should have. Now, so I'm looking and I'm going, oh, that's, yes, yes, and I start to get it. They're all different. They are all different. And mine is represented. And so it's like I'm going, oh. And I think, I'd been going to see a therapist for two years, and it hadn't made a dent in my fear of being genitally deformed. And that really started my career as an educator. And I haven't stopped, and I'm not going to stop. And so I just want all of you to know that your sex organ is not a vagina. Don't, don't buy into that crap. That's the birth canal. The proper name would be a vulva. And let me point something else out. Do you ever hear the word clitoris? Do you ever see it written? Does anybody ever talk about it? That is our primary sex organ. That is the female phallus. And they keep trying, oh, now they have the G spot so you get back inside. And <laughs> I hope you're not excited because you like to do that. <laughs> Idiot. It's the clitoris. It's up there on top. Got it? Yeah, whatever's going on inside of the vaginal canal, that's fine. You work your PC muscle, but it's clit stim, kids. So this man, this man was brilliant. Whenever I wanted to have an orgasm, I masturbated by stimulating my clitoris. And whenever I had partner sex, I tried to come from vaginal intercourse. Oh, the myth of the vaginal orgasm, it's just, it's like a heavy cloud over all the women. And, and guys, I'm telling you, we're faking you out right and left. You know, you're so into that dick down there that we go, ooh, ooh. Oh, I brought that one home, yeah, man. So we have a lot to learn, and we have a lot to teach, and my workshops are brilliant, and I never thought I would do it. I wore my hip joints out doing the, the body sex groups, and up and down off the floor. And then, I don't know, in my 60s, I went and got hip replacement. Now they're titanium. <laughs> oh. So, uh, so oh, I'm doing it again, and my image and my, my commitment is we're also certifying women to run these groups. So I am going to send an army of orgasmic women out into the world. Best believe I'll recall all the days of our youth when we'd cry about our poverty and we can laugh in a state of decay. Oh no.
is all for this episode, folks. This is Fox behind me now. P-H-O-X. And that, of course, was Betty Dodson that we just heard. You can find her book, Sex for One. It's still available on Amazon. Well, that's about all I have to say at this point. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. This is Cameron Esposito at the uh, L.A. live show at Mert. <laughs> Fuck my ass.